ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the KWUR Theater of the Air. I'm David Reinstrom. My name is David Brunel Brunner. And I, as last week, am Alex Jensen. What were you the week before? Alex Jensen. What were you the week before that? Bob Sagan. A woman of mystery. Here on KWUR Clayton 90.3 FM, you can listen online at www.kword.com. Tonight, an evening of adventure, an evening of triumph, an evening of robots and Stephen Fry. <laughs> Robots and Stephen Fry. Hmm, what could this, possibly I, have I think we can you. safely say that this is the only show uh, on the radio where you will hear Robots and Stephen Fry. Probably. But yes, we are doing Stephen Fry, uh, the comedian, British comedian, yes. uh, who you may have seen as the talk show host in V for Vendetta, but he did all kinds of other things before that. All kinds of hilarious things. I don't know. I don't think that's very much in line with the feudal spirit, Jeeves. For example, Jeeves and Wooster. When you say very well, sir, the way you say very well, sir. Yes. Uh, he did Jeeves and Wooster. He was Jeeves. Actually, I'm pretty sure that the Jeeves of Ask Jeeves Oh no! Yes, is modeled very specifically on Stephen Fry's Jeeves. Well, P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves. Well, yes, I mean Stephen Fry's interpretation of P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves. Explain, oh, you, mean, you mean the graphic. explain Jeeves and Worcester. Jeeves David. and Worcester is uh, these the, the series of short stories and novels by the the British American uh, author P.G. Woodhouse, um, and it, it's all about this this ridiculous young man. Um, Bertram Worcester of the Worcesters, who is an enormously rich fop and and an idiot, uh, and he always manages to get into an immense amount of trouble with his stupid rich friends, and they always just have these ridiculous adventures. And Jeeves, um, Bertie's manservant, his gentleman's gentleman, is always preternaturally prepared. He doesn't he doesn't walk into a room. He glides or he floats, and he just always has the immediate solution. Right. He all, he has the solution for every situation, and he's just Im- impeccable in his his manner, uh, in his bearing, and problem solving. They almost become detective stories later. Like, like really? Well, I mean, yes and no. Like like a, a noble. Or a relative will invite Bertie over to their country estate, and they'll be like, you did bring Jeeves, didn't you? And he's like, well, yeah, he's my manservant. And they're like, good, because we didn't really need you. We need Jeeves. We have a problem. And then Jeeves will be like, <laughs> I shall do my best to bend my massive intellect to it, sir. And but it was always the butler, you know. Hmm? He well, did. he's not a butler. He's a valet. Ah, fine line. Well, in any event. <laughs> Jeeves and Worcester, a series of... Books by P.G. Woodhouse. Yes. Translated into a uh, BBC. It was, it was the BBC, right? Uh, it was British television, but I don't believe it was okay, well, Channel 4. Into a British yes. uh, serial show. But that has nothing to do with... But Jeeves and Worcester has nothing to do with what we're going to play you. But the, the, po- the, the whole po- point of this is that it involves A. Stephen Fry. Bing. B. Hugh Laurie. And this was there. This was before a bit of Fry and Laurie. What we're going to play for you—it's this uh, radio show from 1988 called Saturday Night Fry, uh, and I think they were just getting started here as as like a, a well-known comic duo. Yeah, this is pretty early on, but it's also hilarious. So I think without further ado, we should punch this thing. Boom! Punch it like Ouch. like like a baby. Don't punch babies, David. Radio Four. 
And now to open this brand new series of Saturday Night Fry, we present a show that was first broadcast last December. Yeah, we'll we just let it fade out after a while and then, then I'll start speaking, OK? Yeah, well, I asked him to organise a private sale, in fact. Well, no, not unless they need the furniture as well. Yeah, OK. Right, so uh, uh, three, three seconds to air, then. Right. Good evening, and as the thunder and lightning polka fades away, it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome you, and many others too, I'm sure, to the very first Saturday Night Fry. Uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Stephen Fry. Uh, I stand six foot four and a half in my stocking feet, and I have a bent nose. Uh, I'm in my very late twenties. I enjoy weeding, collecting 17th century Puritan tiaras, and dividing my time between Austrian expressionist furniture. Ah, now you know as much about me as I do myself. Uh, you'll forgive me for being formal, but then I like formality. Wasn't it Oscar Wilde who was imprisoned for sodomy? I don't know why I said that. I'm so sorry. Anyway, over the next few weeks, as part of a wider international government-funded experiment, I shall be presenting a series of short, half-hour radio programmes aimed at the psychosexually challenged members of the community. I'm obliged to tell you that it may be that some listeners will find parts of this programme uh, rather badly written and incompetently performed. I hope not, uh, uh, but we shall see. But first, uh, let's see what we can do about running the signature tune for you. <laughs> If you ever been down to New Orleans, then you can understand just what I mean. Now all through the week it's quiet as a mouse, but on Saturday night they go from house to house. You don't have to pay the usual admission if you're a cook or a waiter or a good musician. So if you happen to be just passing by, stop in at the Saturday night fish fry. It was Friday. Well, there you are. That was the signature tune. Now, I have an impressive lineup of guests and a repertory company of two of the most talented actors working in England today. I thought it would be a good idea for you to meet them before we began. So, for this first programme, I managed to track them down and catch up with them at the place we arranged we would meet, the BBC Radio Rehearsal Rooms. Firstly, I said hello to Hugh Laurie. Ma! Yes. Hugh, hello. No, no, good afternoon to you, Stephen. Now, Hugh, tell us something about yourself, your work. Stephen, I've worked extensively in both television. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of characters are your speciality, would you say? Uh, um, I like to work younger character actors, uh, rustics, passed-over majors, and embittered paediatricians. I see. Uh, what about Shakespeare? Never have played Shakespeare, funnily enough. I don't have the height, you see. Although I did once play Christopher Marlowe in a television special. I've been in dozens of Shakespeare plays, of course. Um, a Midsummer Night's Dream, Merchant of Venice, even to some extent, Timon of Athens. And, and comedy or tragedy, mostly? If you'd ever seen my bottom at Stratford, you really wouldn't need to ask that. Well, well I did catch your bottom at Stratford, in fact. You did? I gave my bottom opposite Peter Warner's snout, of course. I've also presented a crab in The Two Gentlemen of Verona in Bromley and Westcliff. That's Westcliff-on-Sea, of course, not the other Westcliff, if there is another one, which I doubt. Comedy is much more difficult, of course. Why is that, I wonder? Well, you probably didn't know this, but the essence of comedy is truth. If it isn't real, it can't be funny. C can you give me an example of that? Uh, well, um, if a pretend person is walking down the street and they slip on a pretend banana skin and fall down and pretend to fracture their pelvic girdle, it isn't funny. But if a real person is walking along and they slip on a real banana skin and really fracture their pelvic girdle, it is funny. Is that right? Oh, yes, very funny. Because it's true. Is it? Yes, absolutely true. <laughs> Happened to my grandfather. I laughed for a week. Well, Hugh, I'll let you get back to your work now. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Entirely your pleasure, Stephen. Bye. Uh, yes, aren't you forgetting something, Hugh? Um, I don't think so. Good, good. I thought you might be, but you're not. Excellent. Now, let's, if we may, meet Emma Thompson. Uh, Emma, if I can just... 
tear you away from the senior rehearsing there. Okay, um, Barry, take five. Uh, I've counted how many there are in the box, so if you take more, I'll know. Emma, hello. Yes. Emma, I suppose you're best known to the public for your portrayal of the neurotic, friendless madwoman who thinks she's a star. But really, you're just a wholesome girl next door, aren't you? I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Uh, you're best known as the wholesome girl next door, uh, but really you're just a neurotic, friendless madwoman who thinks she's a star, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the most extraordinary thing about me, uh, Stephen, is that when I played Portia, you really believed that I was playing Portia. Um, I even, and, and this is the truly frightening part, um, I even believed it myself. Um, I truly believed I was playing Portia. <laughs> I can't account for that. Eerie. Emma... Your list of accomplishments is startling. Uh, you write, you act, you sing, you dance, mm. you play tragedy, comedy mm. and magical realism. Mm. Uh, you're a well-regarded mm. feminist and a political activist on behalf of a number of causes. Mm. Uh, how on earth do you find time to be a wife and mother? I'm not a wife and mother. Ugh. I see. Well, uh, ambitions? Oh, um, I'd like to be a Taurian. Uh, at the moment I'm a Sagittarian. Taurians are more rounded. Uh -huh. Hugh, <coughs> would you like to come in here? No, thanks. I'm happy where I am. Right. Well, thank, thanks, thanks to the pair of you. Well, we'll be hearing from Emma and Hugh later on in the programme. But now let's meet our studio audience. And this week it's Arnold from New Malden. Arnold, good evening. Hello there, Stephen. Now, uh, you're going to be our studio audience tonight. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll be laughing at any humorous moments and mm. joining in for a fair amount of the madcap revelry, I understand. Very much hope so. And what's your daytime job, I wonder? I'm a bishop. A bishop? Uh, what's that exactly? Well, it can vary from denomination to denomination, but within the Anglican communion, where I work, uh, a bishop is what we call a diocesan leader. Uh, that means roughly that I am a sort of area chief, if you like. Uh, a diocese is a, is, a, is a large region. Oh, so you're, so you're quite senior, then? Uh, yes, I would say so. <laughs> uh, ecclesiastical hierarchies are as strictly defined as any. <laughs> and and mm. let's get this quite straight. Um, this is within a, a, a church of some kind? Yes. In my case, the Anglican church. The Church of England. Gotcha. So, you work in this, this Anglian church. Ang Anglican. R right, this Anglican mm. church. Mm. Uh, and, and that's what kind of work, uh, principally. Is that, is that manufacturing, or are you on the marketing side? PR, sales, uh, what? No, not really. It's administrative work, of course, uh, but there's plenty of liturgical and canonical business as well. Uh, baptism, confirmation, synodic work, Eucharists, the cure whoa, of whoa, 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 whoa. Synodic, baptism, liturgical? <laughs> it looks like there's rather a lot of jargon involved here. Uh, is it good work, Arnold? Is it something you enjoy? I hate it, Stephen always wanted to be a watercolorist, but I did geography at school, and that killed landscapes for me. Uh, still, Episcopal duties keep me busy. No time for regrets. <laughs> I bet that's right, Arnold. I bet that's right. Sure. Well, all the more kind of you to take time off from, from your office to... It's a palace, rather than an office. Yeah, right, to take time off from your palace uh, and to come and be our, our audience here tonight. Have you, have you been an audience before? Oh, yes, yes. I have twice been the audience for Moneybox with Louise Botting and once for Janine McMullen's A Small Country Living. Well, you know the form, then. Yeah. Right, if you'd like to go and sit down over there, we can begin. And as Walt Teufel's Skater's Waltz fades away, it's time, of course, for Spot the Funny Noise. You've played it before, you know the rules. I play two different sound effects. One of them is funny, one isn't. You have to use your skill and judgment to decide. Now, here's sound effect number one. <laughs> That was sound effect number one. Now for the second. <laughs> <laughs> 
Antihistamine. Antihistamine. And that was sound effect number two. Which one was funny? Or was neither? Answers on a postcode only. Now, to the film of E.M. Forster's remarkable novel, Devices and Desires. I went along to the opening with which film critic, Alexander Grise. But first, let's hear an extract. Margaret Freight is engaged to the effete Edward Lefanu. Unknown to him, she's had a liaison with Riffy, an Arab boy, during a holiday in Cairo. Here, Helen, the film's heroine, played by Christine Setti, is telling Timothy Sargent, her fiancé, played by Rupert Gardner, why she can't marry him, played by June Carney. The part of Dr. Ford, Simon Cracknell, Helen's stepfather, is played by Dinsdale Denham, Julian Raft. But first, played by Richard Esterhazy, she has to tell Aunt Jane, Joan Watson, played by Lydia Helm, the actress's Frances Watling, about her fears for her sanity, a rare appearance this by the veteran actress Jill Treacher, played by Juinda Rains. Well, um, what, what's happening here? This is this is the scene where the family are in the art gallery and they're looking at the Mantegna canvas. This is beautifully photographed here. The camera's looking at the painting. You can hear the Mantegna theme on the oboe just there. Ah, now, now the footsteps you can hear, that's a group of German tourists who are just rushing by. They're not looking at the painting at all, which the family's... Oh, now, now yes, we've cut to a flashback uh, of the holiday on, on the Greek island of Paros. This is uh, lovingly recreated at Shepperton Studios. There's Michael uh, wrestling with Basil while Jane... No, Helen, sorry, is looking on. The fishermen are, are, are just... And there's a gill... Oh, no... Sorry, we've cut, we've cut back to the art gallery. Um, Jeff, is, is there a, um, a clip we can play with more dialogue in it? Um, thank you. That's it. Great. Now, ah, yes, now we're at the tea party at Mrs Henslow's country house in Hertfordshire, uh, and Aunt Jane is talking to Helen. But Helen, it's all arranged. Some tea? Arrangements? You know I hate arrangements, Aunt Jane. I thought you at least understood. Have you told him? I'm going to have to be brave. So is he, but I've an awful feeling that inside he won't care. Oh, how can you say that? Timothy is devoted to you, Helen. Oh, he's fond of me, all right. Just as he is fond of motor cars and John Buchan and almond cake. I will be added to the collection. Well, is that so very dreadful, darling? Timothy has the finest collection of almond cake in the country. I know I should be honoured to be a part of it. Miss Sandclove, Helen. Timothy. Oh, uh, it's, a, it's a trifle chilly. I, I think I'll just slip into the house and, and put some clothes on. My love, look what I bought you. Oh, Timothy. I went to Grodzinski's yesterday and asked the man to bring out the best. Timothy, it's lovely. Will it fit on your finger? Timothy, I'm not sure I want to wear a donut on my finger. They don't do almond cakes in a ring. I thought this would please you. It cost enough. Oh, Timothy, you can't weigh affection in pounds and pence. I wouldn't have cared if you had bought me nothing but a, a bap, so long as I felt you really cared. A flowery bap or a plain bap? Any kind of bap, that's not the point. Jackson's of Piccadilly do a currenty bap. I'm sure they do, Timothy. I'm sure they do a lovely currenty bap. Timothy, do you remember the Masaccio in the Prado? What? Florence, Timothy. Florence. There was a painting there in the Uffizi, a huge Modigliani. It spoke of... It spoke? Uh, it, to me, it spoke, and to Aunt Jane, and I think to Dr. Ford. It spoke to us about the inner life and the outer life, Timothy, there in the academia that week in Venice. You mean that big canvas of the fat pink woman and the cherub? It was a Madonna and child, yes, by Medina. It had a rhythm. Something happened in that stuffy room in the Rijksmuseum. A Spanish boy came up to me and whispered in my ear, do you remember? And then you fainted. I had him thrown out. There was a fussy English scene, shouting and blaming, blaming and shouting, blouting and shaming. But something had happened there in front of that manet in the Louvre. Something had happened. I'd say, you don't want me to buy the ruddy painting for you, do you? 
I'd have to sell half my collection of almond cakes to pay for a thing like that. You don't need to buy it for me, Timothy. Every detail of that Matisse is all in my head, as if I were in the Hermitage in Leningrad. Looking at it now, every brush stroke. Sunstroke, more like. The point is, the point is, you don't remember. That's the point. That's what the point is. Don't you see? The point isn't something else. It's that. That's the point. Timothy, I hate it when you do that while I'm talking to you. It's rude and it isn't hygienic. Now, where was I? Yes, it was the point. That's the point. That painting to you, it was just another Michelangelo. You never wanted to go with us to the Smithsonian in the first place. I'm trying to say that I can't marry you. Can't? Can't or won't? Both. Neither. Oh, I don't know. Uh, Ferdinand and Miranda in their brave new world. Do I intrude on the lovers? Oh, Dr. Ford. No, I... We... That is, I... She, that is... I... Uh, Why would oh. you have to leave Doctor? I'll take that cake box with me, my man. <laughs> Helen, my child. What is it? You're... You're laughing. No, no, Doctor. I'm not laughing. I'm just sort of crying, that's all. Well, what's so funny? You remember the Spanish youth who whispered in my ear in the National Gallery? Oh, vividly. We were looking at that superb Millet. I always wanted to know what the boy said to you. You never favoured me with the confidence. He said... He said... Well, if you've read Devices and Desires, you'll know what he said. Otherwise, you can find out when the film opens in London tomorrow. Alexander Grise. Uh, this is now the fourth uh, Ivory Merchant film based on an E.M. Forster novel. Devices and Desires is probably, with the exception of Howard's End, the most difficult to adapt. Do you think it came off? Well, I'd have to say that I rather think it did. Um, I thought in particular the performance of Rupert Dean as the Spanish boy worked brilliantly. Uh, he was beautiful. He was smooth-limbed. He had deep brown eyes and a sort of puckish, boyish grin, which revealed excellently white teeth. Uh, he wore simple cream shorts that exultantly emphasised rather than concealed his... Yes. Well, his... What about um, Dame Ulna Cruikshank as Aunt Jane? Did she bring it off? I have to say that I think she was less successful. Uh, her teeth are very yellowed. Uh, I, I think, in fact, they may be false. Rather low-slung breasts. Uh, they're real enough, I'm afraid. Her complexion, compared to Rupert Dean's extraordinary honey-tan smoothness, was humdrum, not to say unappealing. Dean had a kind of liquid grace about him in the way he moved, the way he flicked back a lock of that glossy young hair, the way those shorts rode up. And, mm, and, mm, and, Maria Castle as Helen, did that, did that work? Again, I couldn't detect the first provocative, downy suggestion of a moustache on her upper lip, uh, as I could with Dean, and to some extent with Dame Ulmer, of course. And she had rather full breasts, unlike Dean's taut, silky pectorals. Well, which... I, I rather liked those breasts. Really? No, well, they didn't work for me at all. Uh, give me a supple, coltish frame. So, Devices and Desires, starring Ulna Cruikshank, Daniel Macefield and Maria Castle. And Rupert Dean. And Rupert, as Alexander Grice so rightly points out, Dean, uh, is opening in the West End of London tomorrow. Uh, Rupert Dean may want to get in touch with me to talk about his performance. I'm available on 01776-2. In December 1986, during the fall of 1985, Dr. John Fordyce, working quietly on a serum to combat a deadly virus that was threatening to exterminate all London's estate agents and thus reduce house prices at a stroke, happened upon Floric 19, a remarkable semi-genetic plasma whose fantastic properties he only became aware of when he accidentally injected himself with an untested sample of the substance one balmy spring evening in the mid-sixties in his laboratory in London's fashionable Edinburgh sometime during 1958. Fordyce Lab Notes, Tape 7. <laughs> Testing. I have injected 30 milligrams of Floric 19 into my thigh. So far, I feel no effects whatsoever. I can see clearly, think clearly. Seven sevens are 49. The capital of Australia is Canberra. The Prime Minister of Great Britain is Margaret Thatcher. 
Twelve twelves out of 144. No discernible contraindications, whatever. I... Wait... Wait a minute. So, so, something's happening to my chest. My... My flesh is expanding. The, the, the hairs... The hairs on the back of my hand, they're... They're, they're disappearing. I... That is... I... Predictable as it seems, something was happening to Dr. John Fordyce. My God, something is happening to me. I've turned into a woman. There isn't any doubt about it. I have two unmistakable breasts and... Oh, I'm unquestionably a woman. Seven sevens are 77. The capital of Australia is A. I'm even thinking differently, intuitively, freed from the shackles of logic and reason... I must note carefully the effects of this drug. But first, I have so many thank-you letters to catch up on. I never wrote to Andre and Judith thanking them for that dinner party in 77. Dear Judy, just a brief note... And so, Jenny Flamisto was born. But back in Belgravia's fashionable London, over the months, Dr. Fordyce learned to control the drug, whose effects would wear off after three hours, transforming him back from Jenny Flamisto to hard-working John Fordyce. But his alter ego, Jenny, was no ordinary woman. When I am Jenny, and this must be some strange property of Thoric 19, I have extraordinary powers. If I half close my eyes and stare very hard, I'm able to understand and appreciate a lot of modern art that I used to consider rubbish. My movements are much more regular than I have any right to expect, and I seem to have no trouble at all programming the video correctly. Oh, and I can fly, make myself invisible, throw my voice and see through things. With these extraordinary powers, Fordyce, as Jenny, was able to use her gifts to create a massive fortune for herself, carving out a criminal empire that stretched from one place to another one quite a long way away from it. One man knew of her secret, American-born radio announcer Don McElwain, and he, using stolen tape recordings of Fordyce's original experiment, planned to expose Jenny Flamisto for what she was on national radio. But even while he was broadcasting, Jenny Flamisto burst into the small studio in London's central London and confronted the one man who stood between her and her crazed ambitions. So, Don McElwain, you dare to expose me. We're on air, she-wolf. Anything you say will be broadcast to literally people. Ha! You fool. Hmm? You puny fool. You feeble fool. You feeble, puny fool. You phony, peeble fool. You fooly, phenal pube. With one thought, I can hypnotize a whole audience into thinking that they are listening to whatever I choose. Even as we speak, they think they are listening to... The streets of Cabudambal bustle with life as early as six o'clock in the morning as the bright dews that sweep down from the bashed mountains drape themselves around the tall, mud-daubed buildings of the old colonial residence, a piquant reminder of the all-but-forgotten days of British rule. Emmerich Lurgeon, grateful for the weekly opportunity to talk in pseudo-literary journalese, Cabudambal. That report from Roger Dalton in Hyannisville ends this edition of From Our Own Correspondent. And from our own correspondent, was produced in our Bristol studios by Haranita Dench. And now, before the news and weather, here is the shipping forecast issued by the Meteorological Office at 1400 hours Greenwich Mean Time. Finisterre, Dogger, Rockall, Bailey, no. Wednesday, variable, imminent, super. South at Sierra, North at Sierra, Sheerness, Foulness, Elliotness. If you will, often, 
Eminent, 447, 22 yards, touchdown, stupidly. Malin, Hebrides, Shetland, Jersey, Fair Isle, Turtleneck, Tank Top, Cortel, Blowy, quite misty, seasickness. Not many fish around, come home, veering suggestively. That was the shipping forecast for 0700 hours, Wednesday the 18th of August. And now here is an urgent message for a Mr. Timothy Wilton of Hemel Hempstead. Will Mr. Timothy Wilton, last believed to be on a bicycling holiday in Beaconsfield, please return home immediately where his mother is seriously annoyed about how untidy his bedroom is. You see? They can hear nothing but normal radio output. Your plan has failed, Dom McElwain. Wrong, Jenny Flamisto. They're listening to us now. What? How... how did you... No one could have interfered with my broadcast projection like that. No one... Unless... Unless they had taken Floric 19 too? Yes. You've met your match, Jenny Flamisto. Meet... Barry Cryer. But you, I... that is, I... Following the instructions on your lab tapes, I formulated the serum and injected myself with it. Why, that is, you... I, I never... They, Instead surely... of turning into a woman, I turned into Barry Cryer. I may have left out some vital ingredient, but don't underestimate me. I am packed with strange powers. Amongst my supernatural gifts, I have the remarkable ability to find something suggestive and naughty in anything you say. But that's extraordinary. Extraordinary? At my age, it's a miracle. But it's horrifying. It is horrifying, isn't it? I'll put it away. There, you see what I mean? A lewd ambiguity for every occasion. You're having me on. No, but it's an idea. You can keep this up indefinitely. Are you sure you want me to answer that? All right, if you can twist any remark I might make, try this. Uh, buttercup. Buttercup, buttock down. Buttercup, buttock down. And rest. Thank you, madam. Curses, that was too easy. I'll try another. Anti-tank missile. You flatter me. But you should see it when it's angry. I don't get it. I'll soon put a stop to that. My God, you have actually become Barry Cry. Your duple entendres are staggering. Only when I cough. Well, if you really are Barry Cry, would you mind signing this? It's for my children. I don't remember ordering any children. I can have them biked over to you tomorrow. The youngest is allergic to eggs. Apart from that, there should be no trouble. Please sign for them. There's a dotted line on the bottom there. There's a novelty. Well, quite. And as Saint-Saëns' organ concerto fades away, we come to that part of the programme in which we copy, rather shamelessly, but with deep respect, an idea which has been seen on your television screens as Jim will fix it. We call it, Stephen will do his level best to comply with your wishes. And our first letter comes from Michael Thompson, aged seven. Uh, dear Stephen, please would you do your level best to comply with my wish to go up in a hot air balloon? No. Now, a letter here from... Rebecca Taylor. Rebecca Taylor. Oh, this is the most atrocious handwriting. I'm not doing my level best to comply with any wish from this one here. Now, what are they teaching them these days? Uh, onward and upward. Uh, here's one from Yasmin Schofield, aged 12. Dear Stephen, please can you do your level best to comply with my wish for there to be world peace and no more hungry people in the world? Well, as a matter of fact, I can, Yasmin, yes, but uh, I don't think we'd make very good radio, do you? Now... Dear Stephen, please, 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 yes, 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 yes. Uh, please, 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 uh, could you do your level best to comply with my wish to interview David Bowie from Jackie Fry, aged 12? P.S. I think your program's great, Uncle Stephen. Right. Well, we'll do our level best for you, Jackie, and this is what happened. Jackie and I are standing outside David Bowie's London pied-à-terre. I wonder if he's in. What do you think, Jackie? Don't know. Well, we'll know soon enough. Uh, you excited, Jackie? Yes. Oh, it's him. Jeremy? 
hello, David. Uh, it's Stephen Fry here from Saturday Night Fry. Um, I, I have a young friend with me, and we were wondering... Uh, that's Fry. Uh, and we were wondering... Uh, F-R-Y. That's right. Um, we were wondering if we might come in, uh, listen to some of your discs, and, and have a little chat. Oh, well, when will he be back? Well, well, can, can we come in and wait for him, do you think? Oh, I see. Um, well, where would you suggest we go? Well, I hardly think we'll find Mr. Barry there, attractive though the thought may be. Hello? Uh, hello? Oh. Oh, so, anyway, Jackie, that was the actual outside of David Barry's flat. Um, on to the next stage of our complying with your wishes, uh, I think a visit to a real pop music recording studio is in order. Uh, so, can we come in and wait? No. I see. Our next stop was Hammersmith and the Metropolitan Police car pound for an absorbing afternoon spent searching for my car. What? But, but this is absurd. I was recording a radio program. Forty-five pounds. Oh, very well. Um, Jackie, have you got five pounds? Jackie? Jackie? Right. The next port of call was Great Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Children. Hello, Jackie. I've brought you some grapes. Now, it was very silly of you to run away, wasn't it, Jackie? Especially as I've got a car. You know you didn't stand a chance. Never mind. I've brought along a rather special visitor for you. Yes, it's Hugh. Hello. Did you, uh... Did you go to that film in the end, Hugh? Yes, I, yes, I did, yeah. <laughs> Well, after all that, we invited Jackie to come and join us in the studio today. But she refused. Which was very stupid of her, because sitting next to me right now is David Bowie. Hello. Hello. So, up yours, Jackie, with a wire brush. And now, my final letter. Dear Stephen, can you do your level best to comply with my wish to appear in the next item with you? Yours in a fever of anticipation, Hugh Laurie. Really, Hugh, I would have hoped that you thought you knew me well enough not to need to ask that. Uh, the answer, in fact, is no, because we're going straight away now over to Professor Florian Bilney of the School of Anglo-Velvic Studies with the third of his... You see, Don McElwain or Barry Cryer or whatever you call yourself, your powers are fading. They are all listening to normal radio output again. Don't be too sure, Jerry Flamisto. One more sip of Floric 19... And I can turn myself into... Neville Sanderson. What? But who? But how? But... but... Yes, yes, exactly. In Neville Sanderson, you have met your final adversary, Jenny Flamisto, for I can turn you into an advertising voiceover. Never. You wouldn't dare. I... That is, I... You know, but... But which gave me... Because you're lovely, Fevlon have created Spring Mist, a new kind of fragrance for a new kind of woman. You see? And how about this? Now, there is a lavatory cleanser that goes clear to the pain. New double-action floosh. 
first a decongestant to soothe and disinfect, then a new kind of freshener that goes on working. All the fat, half the taste. That's the floosh promise. Um, Alexander Grise, if I can turn to you, people seem to be turning into people rather a lot. Um, d- does it come off as a piece of radio theatre, do you think? Well, I could only wish that someone would turn into Rupert Dean. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, t- turning to our audience now, uh, Bishop Arnold, reactions, thoughts, inferences? Stephen, I wonder if you do your level best to comply with my wish to be allowed to read this piece of paper here. Oh, fire away, Bish. You've been listening to Saturday Night Fry, written and presented by Stephen Fry, starring Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson. Tonight's guest stars were Barry Cryer and David Bowie. Additional material by Ian Brown and James Henry. The show was produced by Dan Patterson. Stephen, could you do your level best to comply with my wish to get Rupert Dean to read that? I, I think it would particularly suit his honey-toned, velvet-throated, sweet and youthful voice. I... No, I'm sorry. Time the old enemy has vanquished us once more, but don't forget to join us when we serve up another skillet full of breadcrumb surprises in next week's Soter of Saturday Night Fry. Now, if you ever want to get a fist in your eye, just mention a Saturday Night Fish Fry. I don't care how many fish in the sea, but don't ever mention a fish to me. It wasn't rocking. It wasn't rocking. You never see that stuffing and shuffling till the break of dawn. It wasn't rocking. Hi, welcome back. You're listening to the K-War Theater of the Air here on KWR Clayton 90.3 FM. And welcome back. Coming up in the next hour and a half. Hilarity! Hilarity! More Eye of Argon, if you recall Eye of Argon from, uh-huh. our, from uh, two weeks ago. More yes. readings from that fantasy epic. Uh, the introduction of two delightful interns. <laughs> I cradle, I, I chafe my hands together in a most evil fashion. Uh, then, well, well, before that we're going to have Sky Pirates, and then we're going to have uh, story time with Alex. Yeah! But first... This show has everything tonight. I know. This show has everything. Everything. But first, a message. Did you know that car crashes are the number one cause of teen deaths? And that half of all teens die, die in a car crash. But you can do something about it. Next time you're in a car with a friend who is driving recklessly, speak up. Say something. Anything. Because there is no spokesperson to prevent reckless driving. There's only you. Speak up. This has been a public service message from the Ad Council. Thanks, Alexo. And now we're going to take a quick break. But we'll be back. Oh, we'll be so back. Kick down your wake up. Keep in touch with the very best. 
You're listening to KWUR Clayton 90.3 FM. This is the KWUR Theater of the Air. I'm David Reinstrom. And I'm David Brunel Brutman. And I'm Alex Jensen, as always. Uh, we yes. have some excellent things in store for you as we discussed before the break. We have some amazing things in store for you. That is undeniably true. This is going to be awesome. David, what do we have? We have episode three of Sky Pirates. Yes! If you have been following the epic adventures of Captain Gulliver Nash and the crew of the Feathered Beagle, you are not going to want to miss this. David, what is the coolest thing that happens in this episode? I can't tell you that. You'll just have to listen. Uh, okay, does... Uh, there's a stirring Do speech. any major characters die? No. Uh, there's a stirring speech. I said stirring, it. Okay, I said there's, it. there's, there's a, a stirring, stirring speech. speech at the end. It better stir you. You're going to want to listen to this. You are going to want to listen to this. Let's, Trust let's play it. Just play it. Let's do this. The desert plains of Afghanistan. A pack of wild horses kicks up dust as it races across a plateau. Thousands of feet above, the moon hangs dull and yellow in the black sky, and a spiny floating fortress scuds by like the shadow of an evil thought. Evil thoughts like the ones that lurk within the brain. Mm-hmm. Of Baron Klaus von Grupp. Good evening. Baron von Grupp. The master of the Death's Head, that aerial citadel, pours over some secret plans and blueprints in his study. Yes, they're very secret. Yes, but... But nothing. Secret plans go away. (laughs) Engrossed as he is in his schemes, the Baron neglects to hear the approaching, angry footfalls of his patroness, the elegant and furious Lady Magdalena. What? Good evening, Klaus. My... Table. I think it should be evidence that I am displeased with you. You stabbed my table. You have not been forthright with me. Lady Magdalena, this table is Brazilian mahogany. There. Now listen. Don't wave that knife in my face, Magdalena. This isn't an interrogation. Magdalena grabs him by the collar. <gasps> That's where you're wrong, Von Grupp. You will not cross me. You will not lie to me. You will not conceal your plans from me or so help me. I'll string you up and gut you like a Christmas pig. Well, I see you have the advantage here. 
but with your knife and everything. I want to know what's been going on, Klaus. What have you been developing behind my back? Please, allow me to show you. Baron von Grupp taps a button under his desk with his foot. A hulking metal monster emerges from the shadows and wraps its steely limbs around Lady Magdalena. Ah! See, this is what I mean. As you can see, I've been working on a few uh, designs. A metal man! Put me down, you brute! Bladebot, put her down, please. Okie dokie, Baron. Thank you. Her name is Bladebot. Bladebot has no gender. Be modern, do. Why does it sound like a cute little girl? A glitch. But I like it that way. You've been building robots. Guilty as charged. You raided that casino with robots? Yes. Not mercenaries. Robots are better than mercenaries. Robots are better than anything. You're an odd duck, Klaus. You know that, getting into this. Why Bladebot? <clears throat> if you would, please. Ah. The mechanical creation's fingers and elbows suddenly sprout dozens of hard, fine-edged steel spars, some at the wrists, well over a foot long. Honestly, I'm surprised you could keep this a secret from me for so long. I'm surprised you discovered me so quickly. <laughs> you see right through me. From a basket on his desk, Grupp picks up a soft-fleshed and fragrant peach. George's finest. Might I offer you one? Is this a test? I guess it's a trust exercise. Do you dare to eat a peach? Oh, don't start me on American poetry. I mean it. Do you have faith enough in me to know that I haven't, say, poisoned this thing? I mean, considering it's been on your desk for a while. I figure, yes. But in principle, no. Not really, at this point. The robots are experimental prototypes. I plan to sell them to the Wehrmacht once they are fully functional. Ingenious. It is the future of warfare. Such a messy business to begin with. Blood is sticky. Klaus! Fritz! Bladebot, go be inconspicuous. Yes, sir. Magda, swear you won't say a word of this to Fritz. Bite the peach. Mm. Have some. It's a deal. What's this? Oh, is I interrupting the two little lovebirds on their little picnic? Oh, no, the absolutely not. Please sit down, Commandant. It is Commandant Fritz Schickelgruber, the new oversight placed on the ship by the Luftwaffe to oversee progress on the Death's Head's prime directive. He is energetic, Bavarian, and because I do so love a picnic, completely incompetent. Thank you. Uh, Lady Magdalena and I were merely going over new schematics for the grapple cannon. Just a few more torque calculations, Commandant, and it should be operational once we get the prototype built. Uh, yes. Oh, you people and your numbers. I was just stopping by on my way to the galley. I wanted to supervise the preparations for my breakfast tomorrow. The captain's mess is, I assure you, uniformly excellent. I happen to have very high standards, especially when it comes to Bayerische Weisswurst. Sorry? Hello? Bayerische Weisswurst? Bavarian white sausage? Oh, 
Bayerische Weißwurst. Yes, uh, delightful. It must be made fresh and cooked very quickly in white wine. I have needs, you see. That's admirable. If only I were so discriminating. Or I. Well, carry on. Mm, yes, goodbye, sir. Thou twit. And as Magdalena and Baron von Grupp hash out an uneasy peace, we are left to wonder, what is he still keeping from her? What? Nothing. What schemes does he continue to plot? There are no more schemes. Come on. Just between you and me? You'll tell everyone if I tell you. Tell everyone what? And now we join the heroes of our tale, long neglected as they are. No kidding. The crew of that brave little airship, the Feathered Beagle, have dashed away to parts unknown to escape from the clutches of their pursuers. We're trying to get out of radar range. Nash has the crew searching the ship. He thinks Grup might have had his bugs somehow. Georgina Purcell, mechanical genius. Thank you. Hunches over her workbench, hard at work at... What are you building? What is that? Oh, just the remains of the robot we found on the ship. You mean the one you bludgeoned to death with your wrench? Spanner. Hello, Nash. Hello, George. You know, it can't really be said to be alive in the first place. Eh. So, I mean, did I really take a life? Irrelevant. What are you doing to it? I'm rebuilding it. Oh, great. It'll just attack us again when you turn it on. Typical American attitude. You think I haven't been fixing it. These things have brains, you know. I... but actual brains? No, electrical ones. It's... this one's pretty rudimentary. It looks like this thing was designed to receive radio transmissions directly from Grub. Here, look. George levers open the chest plate of the mechanical soldier. Eerie. That's where his heart ought to be. Like you know where the heart goes. Low Taggart. Low Captain. George. Hey. Ruff. Men have yet to find a thing, Nash. They've combed every inch of this crate, and there don't appear to be much of a possibility that there are any more of those robots around. Maybe we have lost him. Aha. Found the line and just let me... Yes. What are you doing? Just making the world turn a little bit slower. There. Which means the solid hydrogen thing is out for now. We'll just have to go with liquid fuels. Hell? Who is that? That must be Grupp. What are you talking about? I think I caused the connective relay to broadcast when it wasn't supposed to. Well, who's he talking to? Hard to say, but all I know is Grupp is talking out loud near the transceiver. What a remarkable occurrence. Honestly, Bladebot, sometimes I wonder if this is all worth it. Don't talk that way, sir. I mean, would I really be good at ruling the world? If you're trying to fish for compliments, Baron, it won't work. What? We're the world. This new prototype is the one that'll work for certain. The best part is, Bladebot, I didn't make the rocket airtight. They don't need to breathe. What is he on about? You'll get compliment from me there, sir. A fine, fine notion. I figure we set up there for the next few months, build the moon fortress, right? Right. Stock up the place, fill it with soldiers, then prep it for humans. Make it airtight, fill it with air and plants. Then... With this mobilization going on right now, I mean, there's going to be a war. I can smell it. What does war smell like, Baron? Entrails? Money, Bladebot. Contracts and steel. I know you think it's a silly thing, but humans love money. Even me. But it's only a means to an end, you know. Of course. Complete world conquest. So first we run this... Fool's errand for Magdalena. We kill the American, we get the check. We go to the moon. Built up. Right. Then we get fat off this war. We sit it out. And then, while the world is panting, boom! 
from the moon base. Platoon after platoon sent down in rocket pods. Deep space deployments of entire robot battalions. You'll need to upgrade their logic cores. And to build more commanders like you. But you, Bladebot, my first and best creation, you shall be that general. How does that strike you? I experienced joy on a profound level, sir. I am so happy I could eviscerate a large animal. Uh, I think I've heard enough, George. Taggart, gather the crew. Within five minutes, the whole crew has assembled before Nash. Gents, no doubt you're aware we're in a good deal of trouble. Now you know what I know. This grub fellow has bigger fish to fry than us. We're just one last item to check off his list before he... I, I can't believe I'm saying this. Before he conquers the moon. I, I know that sounds impossible. But this is serious business. He wants to take over the world and... Well, as pirates, we exist by bouncing between the free places of the globe. Paris, New Orleans, Hong Kong. If Grupp wins out, those places won't be free anymore. No more French women. No more Jamaican rum. No more of those weird pastries in New Orleans. Yes, Taggart. Now, the reason we are pirates is because we none of us have much respect for government. <laughs> we don't! That's why we do what we do. And with a lunatic like Von Grubb, I suppose the impulse would be to let the governments of the world handle them. But when's the last time those governments did anything right for their peoples? What was the Great War? What is this depression? If there's a fix to be found, then it's on us to provide it. The free men and women of the air! Yes! We're a little boat. And Grupp Zeppelin is, by accounts, a great and gun-heavy ship of the line. But where I come from, we have a saying. A bull can break its leg in a gopher's hole. That's a weird saying. Hush, Fenwick. Yes, sir. We're the only folks that know what Grupp is up to. And right now, we're in his sights. So for now, we run. We run, we regroup, and we mobilize. We can't take him straight on. A lot of us will have to come at this sideways way we've always done. We can't let this nutter take over the world. That's not the pirate way. Now... We're going to make one last stop in Kandahar before we head off into the Himalaya. And if any of you want to get out and get off, he can do so then. You can take your severance pay and we have done with you. If I have you, then I have you wholeheartedly. And anything less will hurt the fight. If you stay on the Beagle, though, you're with me. I'm with you, Captain. As am I. You cannot do this on your own. So there's that. Who else will stand with Captain Nash, you great lot of wazaks? I will. I will. I'll think about it. I mean, I will. So it is then. We will fight. But first, we will run away! Three chairs for the Captain. Hip hip huzzah! Hip hip huzzah! Hip hip hip, huzzah! And so, a fleeting moment of hope for our heroes. But can this ragtag band of air brigands hope to stand against an unstoppable wall of ordnance and war profits? The massive arsenal of Baron von Gruff's death's head? Does Nash have a plan? Does he ever? Find out next time when we continue with yet another unrelentingly entrancing episode of Sky Pirates! We are back. Hello, you're listening to the KWUR Theater of the Air. I'm David Reinstrom. My name is David Brunel Brutman. And I'm Alex Jensen. And we hope you enjoyed episode three of our original series, Sky Pirates. And now, a quick break! Yay! Shaboom!
Up. We'd like to take this opportunity to introduce today's interns. Hello and welcome. Come here close to the microphone, boys, and Come introduce yourselves. Hello, my name is Robert Ling III. And I'm Sam Clapp. And what do you folks intend to do at Kawa? Um, Sam and I are looking at starting a show next semester. We're working on the concept right now. We'll get back to you. 
Why, that sounds absolutely friggin' brilliant. I don't know why I'm an old prospector. Why are you an old prospector? <laughs> because That is an excellent question. There's gold in them hills, and because I was talking with my friend David Shanker earlier today about an old Will Ferrell skit, in which he played an old prospector. It's pretty good. Gus Chiggins. That's cool. <laughs> See what you've done to me? David Shanker, things you stick in my head. Gus Chiggins. All right, so... Uh, Alexa, tell me when you found that email from your daddy. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, if, if we haven't said so already, um, which we have, but perhaps you've been, <laughs> um, we are reading The Eye of Argon right now. David, yes. do you want to give a quick uh, ex- explanation? The Eye of Argon is the greatest fantasy novella ever written by the hands of man, <laughs> featuring the adventures of the barbarian warrior Grigner, who is... Uh, I don't know what he's doing in relation to the Eye of Argon. The Eye of Argon is a horrible jewel. Grigner's a barbarian who kills everything in sight with everything ridiculous he across, violence. He will kick you apart. And the prose in this piece is to die for. It is so purple. It is so... That the shellfish used to create the dye have been extinct for a thousand years. <laughs> I was going to say it's so purple that it in fact breaks the light spectrum... And creates a new color. Octarine? Yes. Okay. It is a color beyond purple. <laughs> it's like ultra purple, which anyway. is sort of similar to uh, in- infrared. So so this is, a, this is an old story that was first published in 1970 in a... Or extra blue. In a fanzine, in a fantasy, in a fantasy fan uh, publication. Super green? Super green. Forest green, jade green, any kind you want. <laughs> okay, uh, and and the way it works is this: we will take turns going around, and this includes our new guys. Hello, gentlemen. It includes Robert and Sam. Uh, and how it works is we will read until we laugh, mark our spot, pass it on to the next person. That's how it goes. Uh, so, we ready to begin? Uh, yeah, I was. <laughs> I was just uh, looking for this email. I got this great email from Alex's father. (laughs) That my dad sent. uh, We we did this thing uh, two weeks ago on the show. And uh, afterwards, my dad sent sent me this great email because he was listening. um, And I I thought it would be uh, good to uh, read it to you. Um, And I was trying to find it. I think I might be able to pull it up within the next few seconds. Okay. If not, uh, we can just... uh, (gasps) I'm going back two weeks in my in my inbox here, so I'm determined. Dead air is our enemy. We seek to avoid it. We do not like dead air, so we make up little songs. Beatbox solo. Um, you know, I, I could, I could just. Um, oh, oh, wait! I found it. I think it's the one that says <laughs> the title is "Show Last Night." So oh, okay. okay. I, I think, I think this is the one. Okay. Um, and now a message from Nick Jensen, <clears throat> Alex's daddy. After it loads. <laughs> oh nope, that's not the right one. <laughs> K-Worth Theater of the Air. What are the chances? What else? <laughs> bringing what a- you, bringing you misfiled emails, stupid songs. <laughs> 
I don't know about you, Dave. I am on the and edge hilarity. of my seat. Uh, this is quality. Every Thursday at 8. This is quality <laughs> programming right here, uh, if oh. I do say so myself. Oh. I, I tell you what. Why don't uh, well, why don't we begin this reading? I agree. And yeah, we'll find I, the email I could, later. I could read it later because once you hear yes. what we're reading, the email sense. will be 10 times. Certainly. Okay. Right. Our first contestant, David Reinstrom. All right. Uh, what chapter when, are we on? We are here? on chapter five. So when last we left our hero, Grignir the accordion, he was in like some basement dungeon below a palace. He killed a rat, and I think he's going to make the rat skeleton into an impromptu shiv. But now I believe chapter yes. five begins with a break away from from Grignir himself. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, the Eye of Argon, chapter five. Up to the altar and be done with it, wench, ordered a fidgeting shaman as he gave the female a grim stare accompanied by a wrinkling of his lips to a mirthful grin of delight. The girl burst into a slow, steady whimper, stooping shakily to her knees and cringing woefully from the priest with both arms wound snake-like around the bulging... (laughs) 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 Mark my spot. You have to read it exactly as it stands and you will see why I giggled. (laughs) Start start from bulging, <laughs> where the asterisk is. <clears throat> Intern Robert. Um, bulging Jade Jade. <laughs> oh! <laughs> you could not even oh, read a word. Nah. Oh. And, and now, Intern Sam. Bulging Jade Jade Jade. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! You guys, two words. Two words. You skip Jade Jade Shin. You guys are noobs. You will learn. You will learn. Oh, fine. You say Jade Jade Shin. You know what? I will. Bulging Jade Jade Shin. Dang. Rising before her scantily attired figure, her face was redly inflamed from the salty flow of tears sprouting from her glassy, dilated eyeballs. Be strong, Alex. With short, heavy footfalls, the priest approached the female, his piercing stare never wavering from her quivering young countenance. (laughs) Halting before the terrified girl, he projected his arm outward and motioned her to arise with an upward movement of his hand. The girl's whimpering increased slightly, and she sunk closer to the floor rather than arising. The flickering torches outlined her trim build with a weird, ornate glow as it cast a ghostly shadow dancing in horrid waves of splendor. (laughs) (laughs) That's not right. Sorry. That's not right at all. Right there. (laughs) In horrid waves of splendor over smoothly worn whiteness of the marble-hewn altar. The shaman's lips curled back further, exposing a set of blackened, decaying molars which transformed his slovenly grin into a wide, greasy arc of sadistic mirth and and alternately interposed into the female a strong sensation of stomach-curdling nausea. (laughs) Have it as you will, female, gloated the enhanced priest. (laughs) Mark it. Mark it. I can't even find my place. Uh, And the priest enhancement scandal goes into its sixth week here at the Vatican. Okay. Priest enhancement. Have it as you will, female, gloated the enhanced priest as he bent bent over at the waist, projecting his ape-like arms forward, and clasped the female's slender arms with his hairy round fists. (laughs) 
With an inward surge of his biceps, he harshly jerked the trembling girl to her feet and smothered her salty, wet cheeks with the moldy touch of his decrepit, dull red lips. The vile stench of the shaman's hot-feated breath overcame the nauseated female with a deep, soul-searing sickness, causing her to wrench her head backwards and regurgitate a slimy, orange-white stream of swelling gore. (laughs) No! Oh, that's not right. Over the richly woven purple robe of the enthused acolyte. The priest's lips trembled with a malicious rage as he removed his callous paws from the girl's arms and replaced them with tightly around her undulating neck. Shaking her violently to and fro, the girl gasped a tortured groan from her clamped lungs, her sea-blue eyes bulging forth from damp sockets. Uh, Cocking her right foot backwards, she leashed it desperately outwards with the... (laughs) (laughs) This is so good. Fail. I I read ahead. I can't wait to hear I read ahead. Good luck, Robin. Cocking her right foot backwards, she leashed it desperately outwards with the strength of a demon possessed, lodging her saddled foot squarely between the shaman's testicles. (laughs) (laughs) Better than last time, at least. (laughs) Yeah, that was almost a sentence. Was it? I backed up. Go, Sam, go. Um, I'm trying to find my place here. I'm finding it. Yes. I believe the place was testicles. Looking for yeah, testicles. look look I'm for looking. testicles. I can't find. Look look I'm for some testicles. The, t- <laughs> the startled pl- priest released his crushing grip, crimping his body over at the waist, overlooking his recessed belly wide open in a deep chiasm. His, his face flushed to a rose shade of crimson, eyelids fluttering wide with eyeballs protruding blindly. Out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so much eye. I know. I love the eyeballs. That's uh, <laughs> it's too good. All right. Wide with eyeballs protruding blindly outwards from their sockets to their outmost perimeters, while his lips quivered wildly about uh, about allowing an agonized wallow to gust forth as his breath billowed from burning lungs. His hands, re- his hands reached out, clenching his urinary gland. <laughs> That's Dave laughing, not Alex. That's me. No harm, no foul. Keep going. <laughs> I'm trying so hard. Be strong. As his knees wobbled rapidly about for a few seconds, then buckled, (laughs) (laughs) causing the ruptured shaman to collapse in an... (laughs) Nope. I couldn't read it. I read ahead. Okay. Okay, obviously that's the key. The key is not to read ahead. Yeah, the key is definitely not to read ahead. (laughs) causing the ruptured shaman to collapse in an egg-huddled mass to the granite pavement, rolling helplessly about in his agony. The pathetic screeches of the shaman groveling in dejected misery upon the hand-hewn granite-laid pavement. Uh, what? What? (laughs) Worn smooth by countless hours of arduous sweat and toil, a wet uh, welter of ichor oozing through his clenched hands, attracting the perturbed attention of his comrades from their foiled. Uh, sorry, from their. F- I think that's supposed to be feeted. It's it's written foated. Uh, ulations. <laughs> the actions. <coughs> that was a cough. The actions of this rebellious wench bespoke the credence of an unheard uh, of an unheard of sacrilege. Never before in a lost maze of untold eons 
had a chosen one dared to demonstrate such blasphemy in the face of the cult's uh, idolic deity. The girl cowered in unreasoning terror, helpless in the face of the emblazoned acolyte's rage. Her orchid-tussled face smothered betwixt her bulging bosom as she shut her curled lash. How does that even? Her curled lashed, tightly hoping to open them and find herself awakening from a morbid nightmare. Yet the hand of destiny decreed her no such mercy. The antagonized pack of of a leering shaman converging tensely upon her prostrate form, were entangled all too lividly in the grim web of reality. Shuddering from the clammy touch of the shaman as they grappled with her supple form, hands wrenching at her slender arms and legs in all directions, her bare body being molested in the midst of a labyrinth of orange smudges, purple satin, and mangled skulls, <laughs> shadowed in an eerie crimson glow, her confused head reeled and clouded in a mist of enshrouding ebony as she lapsed uh, between, sorry, beneath the protective sheet she, yes, the protective sheet of unconsciousness to a land peach and resin. What? I don't even know, but you're fantastic. End chapter five. Oh. Wow, you did really well. Thank you. So Ladies waiting. and gentlemen, uh, you're listening to the K-Word Theater of the Air here on KWUR 90.3 FN. Staggering FM. performance, David. Thank you. Thank you very much. Listener, you can listen online at www.kwur.com. And if you're really, really cool, you can look up the KWUR Theater of the Air in the iTunes Store. We have a podcast. It's free, and we'd love for you to sign up. Yes, certainly. So that was some fun story time, but we're going to be back in a bit with story time with Alex. Woo! Oh, right. But before we go to take a break, we, we have that email from Nick Jensen, Alex's awesome dad. My papa. Oh, yes. Um, so this is the email my- my dad sent me, uh, great show last night, but were you guys dissing my favorite fantasy novel? It kind of sounded like you were making fun of one of the most color-dripping, image-searing literary works to ever cross over my blood-drenched, light-capturing skull orbs, transporting meaning to the innermost crevices of my left hemisphere. Back off, Jackson. Love, Dad. Yeah. Alexa, <laughs> so you're, you're pretty much almost as cool as you. Mr. Family. Jensen. Oh, I, I aspire. I salute you. We'll be back with more ridiculousness here on K-Worth Theater of the Air.
we return, you're listening to the KWUR Theater of the Air. Here on KWUR, Clayton, 90.3 FM. Why am I talking like this? I don't even know. Hi. Hi, Alex. Hi. This is KWUR. Oh, oh, do we have our station ID? Do we do? We do. Um, Please play it. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to... KWUR, Clayton. 90.3 FM. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And we love that. Now, uh, it's time for... A special message. A special message. (laughs) Thank you. As a parent, you can't help but look at your child and dream about what the future holds. But while you're dreaming, consider this. The odds that your child will be diagnosed with autism are 1 in 50. 1 in 150. Rumor mongerer. Knowing... What is this eye mark on here? Knowing the signs of autism and catching it early can make a world of To learn the signs of autism Brought to you by Autism Speaks in the Ad Council. That was a disaster. Thank you, David. It's story time with Alex! on the music too soon. Oh, well, that was professional. Um, oh, what God. Was, what was that? that never happens, I no. swear. Oh, so what was that? AutismSpeaks.org? AutismSpeaks.org. Okay. Brought to you by Autism and the Ad Council. And the Ad Council. And anyway, it's um, it's story time with Alex. It is! Time. I'm sorry. I thought we were going to do story time with Alex, so I put on the story time with Alex <laughs> no, theme it's music. The, it's the quarter hour. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm flailing impotently in my can chair. I, can I tell my story now? Is, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's have some story time. So uh, we've been going with the theme of uh, near-death experiences. <laughs> and so I thought I would share another one of those with you. You remember the first tor- story I told in which I injured my butt quite badly? Yes. Well, in this story, I, I injured ever? my other butt just as badly. <laughs> by which I mean other butt cheek. Uh, yes. the, the The horse thing, that was the left butt. This story... <laughs> Deals with the right butt. The so, worst butt of all. With, <laughs> without further ado. That was the most unkindest butt of all. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Uh, okay, so I'm in sixth grade, right? Right. Uh, and I've been skiing for my whole life since I was like two years old. So, you know, even when I was 11, I was pretty freaking good at it. And it was all I really knew how to do. I never snowboarded or anything like that. But I was at that age where uh, snowboarding was becoming really cool and everyone was doing it kind of like drugs and uh no i'm just kidding uh kids snowboarding is like drugs (laughs) except when you do drugs you don't have to wear a helmet or knee pads you don't wear a helmet or knee pads um anyway so don't do drugs or snowboarding on on our school ski trip i decided that i wanted to try snowboarding because i wanted to impress all the guys in the class uh and all the girls who were also snowboarding. I was like the loser, because I skied. Anyway, so I rented a snowboard um, with some friends, and we get to the top of the hill, and I'm I'm really struggling with this, right? Like, I, I don't like the idea of having my feet glued together. You know, you have to face sideways, and it's kind of weird, because I've been skiing for forever, and uh, I guess my balance is just a little bit off. So I'm not really having very, a very good time. I'm, I'm kind of falling all over the place, and, and I look like a fool, and uh, so I decided that I became I became fed up with this, like, halfway through the day. So 
I get to the top of the hill and I'm like, you guys, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my snowboard off my feet and I'm going to sit on it with my butt and I'm going to ride it down this hill <laughs> like a sled. Oh, no. And, um, you know, they're like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, whatever. Do, do your thing. Um, so <laughs> I picked the wrong run. Uh, I picked the, I picked the run uh, oh, no. on, on the hill uh, that is, A, the steepest, uh, and B... Where uh, was this? Was this like Lake Geneva This is This or is in Wisconsin. I mean... This is like central-ish Wisconsin. It's called okay. Nordic Mountain. It's okay. like the wimpiest little mountain ever, but, but you know, steep enough. Oh, uh, you've never skied in New Jersey. Uh, no, I haven't, but I can imagine it's... The, the mountains are small. It, it's more of a hill. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, all this uh, this area has a lot of trees as well. And, I don't uh, like this story. And and this this uh, this run uh, the the ends. I'm making this motion with my hands, which you cannot see, listeners. So oh, that's gonna... very illustrative. Thank I... you, Alex. <laughs> Trying to explain it. It's all clear to me. Trying now. to explain the best I can. Where <laughs> where the edge of the run, you know, from the to the left and to the right, goes almost like you know straight down, <laughs> and there and there's like there's trees everywhere. So it's kind of like they they built up the snow around uh, on this run. So like if if you were to hmm, perhaps fall off the side of the run, you would tumble to your doom down uh down in, oh, into the no. forest. Anyway, so this also was, a, was this a black diamond run or was this you a... know what? it doesn't matter. They label them different things in in on hills like this just uh-huh. to make it seem like they have variety, but they're all pretty much the same. I see. Anyway, it, it was still pretty steep, and especially once it dropped off on the sides, that's that's when it's getting dangerous. Also, Nordic Mountain makes their own snow, right? As as many ski hills uh, do in Wisconsin. So in yeah, right, I, I've been skiing out there. Yeah, yeah. So there's this pipeline. Uh, that's running from the bottom of the hill to the top of the hill, this metal pipeline oh, no. where there are, um, like, I don't want to say faucets, but but you can, like, I guess turn the water off in certain in certain places. Like they, taps. I, I guess so, yeah. And for snow. Valves? Valves. That's a perfect word. Uh, so there's these valves uh, on this pipeline where you where there's a little thing sticking up and you twist it and it cuts the water off um, so, you know, you're not making snow or whatever. So I'm at the top of this hill. I put my snowboard down. I plunk my butt on it. And I'm riding down. And I'm having so much fun. I'm going so fast. I'm like, yeah, this is great. This is so much better than snowboarding. And uh, I, I get to be going a little too fast. So I kind of go out of control. I veer to the right of the hill. I smack my right butt on one of these valves on this metal pole. Oh. I am going so fast, I, and it just hits me smack in the butt. You know that feeling when you get hit in the butt? It, it hurts so bad. And, and if so that's good. not bad enough, <laughs> sorry. if that's not bad enough, I go flying into the woods off the side oh, of, no. of the run. No. And I am, I'm rolling down, you know, into the woods, and I'm, I'm hitting trees. I, I'm hitting trees on my way down, and there's branches, and there's thorny bushes, and the thorny bushes are, are on my face. And I finally, I, I, I hit this tree, and I, I stop, and I think I was kind of in shock. Uh, and I'm looking around, and I realize that I hurt pretty bad. And so I start crying, and uh, this one really, really nice guy um, you know, pulls up. 
uh, he's skiing. He pulls up. He's like, oh, my gosh, are you okay? And, and he, you know, comes down into the woods and he tries to pull me up. And I just remember saying, where's my mommy? I want my mommy. And, I, you know, I'm like, I'm like in sixth grade. And I don't <laughs> I guess I was still a kid. But but still, I remember thinking at the time that it was kind of wimpy. But uh, so this guy pulls me up and I'm, I'm just like, you know lying in the snow my butt is throbbing it it hurts so bad uh in addition uh the, the next I, I was i didn't hit my head or anything which mm-hmm. is really lucky yeah. um because i probably should have died like like as usual with me and these yeah stories. i should have seriously died. i think i am immortal anyway uh so the next day at school i'm in class and suddenly i'm finding it very difficult to breathe without my entire torso, you know, shuddering in pain. And this isn't normal. So I I go to the uh, office, and there's this old hag that works there. <laughs> and she's a sister, because um, I went to a Catholic school. She was Sister Kathleen, maybe? Sister something or other. Sister old hag. <laughs> it doesn't matter. She was so mean. She was Alex a witch. hates nuns. I hate nuns. And that's not true. Some nuns are okay. And uh, so I'm in the Sister, I'm in the some office. Fracking nun. I, I'm in the office, and um, you know I'm like you know I'm in a lot of pain. Blah blah blah. And she's like, "Well, I guess I'll have to call your mother." And so she calls my mom. She's like, "Well, your daughter's complaining of pain. I don't know what's wrong with her." Blah 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 blah. She's being this total, you know, but hag total. No, uh, nun hag. So uh, my mom comes and gets me, and she takes me to the doctor. And it turns out that I sprained my rib cage. Oh my god! So I um, they gave me this like girdle thing that I had to I had to like wrap around my rib cage very snugly. It, it velcroed like across. Um, I, I had to pull as tight as possible, and it velcroed across my body. And I had to wear that um, over my clothes for quite some time. How long? I, I, I'm not remembering. Uh, if, Mom, if you're listening and uh, you remember, call in 314-935-KWORD. Because uh, I don't remember. I had it on for not, not as long as you might think. Cause it wasn't like a cast or anything. Mm-hmm. It was just like a girdle to keep my ribs in place so that I didn't fall apart. You know, when, when an imaginary person... Um, slips on an imaginary banana and breaks their imaginary pelvic girdle. That's not funny. Right. This effing hilarious. It wasn't a banana though, so I don't know. It wasn't a. It was less of a banana. It sounds like, and and Ooh. more of a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I want to tell you about this beautiful bruise that I had on my butt for God knows how long. It was yellow. Was and it shaped green. like something? It was purple. No, it was just round. Like a president. It was shaped like Abe Lincoln. How did you know? That's awesome. I know. Weird, huh? Was it actually shaped like Abe Lincoln? I want to have a bruise shaped like Abe Lincoln. But I still have a dent to this day in my right buttock. Stop hitting your Is it working? No. You still have a dent in your buttock? I do. Oh, my God. So it's funny because the horse story, you know, I I told you I have this huge lump where I landed on my left butt. It's not that huge, (laughs) and it's It's... not on your butt butt. It... it, uh... Why are you being difficult? Because, I'm telling a story. Because, because, it's my story. Okay. It's her story. You're right. So I have this lump on my left butt, <laughs> and I have this dent 
on my right butt. Symmetry. Exactly. So it's like if I could get them to somehow fit together, I could probably like unlock, unlock- the cave of wonders. Yes, the diamond in the rough. Exactly. I like anyway. so you are the diamond in the rough. Aw, uh, only if I connect my buttocks. <laughs> And that is my story. Oh boy, I have a I have a really quick horrific uh, skiing injury story. Oh good. This one time I was okay. in line. Wait wait for the... wait. What's my tagline for today? Uh, my buttocks are the diamond in the rough. That'll I th- work. I think that works. Okay, let's let's review. So this week it was my buttocks are the diamond in the rough. Last last time it was fencing with the old lady made of paper. What was the catch the, the catchphrase you guys? Remember? I almost killed. Uh, old lady. What was it? I don't remember. I thought we were going to write it down. Yeah. I, I think it was something like maybe I almost stabbed an old lady. Yeah. I almost stabbed an old lady. I don't know. Well, I did stab the old lady. Then I think it was I could... almost killed the old lady. Okay. I almost killed the old lady. I, I think it was. Uh, yeah, week I think before was... that was, you don't say that to Lord Vader. Mm-hmm. Week before that was, I think we lost him. Mm-hmm. Week before that was, I'm not going to make it. They're getting progressively more strained. <laughs> so, so I'm I'm skiing in like uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, with my yep. family, um, and I'm in line for the chairlift. And it's really it's kind of warm for skiing, mm-hmm. uh, and and the area right by the chairlift, all of that snow has melted and refrozen and melted and refrozen again, and it's just this layer of ice. And I'm with my dad, and I slip, and my skis pop off, and I just fall flat on my face. And it's kind of funny. Uh, but the chairlift keeps going, um, and I don't realize. So I, I push myself up. I'm like 12 years old. I push myself up. on um, I, I'm on all fours now. And the chairlift comes up and cracks me in the back of the Ooh. head, lays me out flat. And, I'm bl- and, 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 and I don't think I was unconscious, but I, I get – Maybe like for a second, but I get the feeling that I came to, and I'm I'm like I'm on my back. I roll over away from everything, and everyone's like gasping, and I'm like, oh, someone, you know, you should really see somebody's bleeding all over your snow. And then I put my head, my hand to the back of my head, and I'm like, holy crap, that's me. Um, I didn't need stitches, but it did just like it cracked open the back of my head, and I had to wear this this cute little bandage turban. I didn't go skiing for the rest of the time. It was cute. That's a fun picture. It was like I was like I had converted to Sikhism, except I had a bloody head and I didn't actually convert to Sikhism. You trickster. You trickster. Anyway, that was story time with Alex. Yay! Yay! Thanks, Alex, for that lovely story. You're so welcome. I'm running out of near death. Well, we're going to have to invent some more situations. Yeah. In which you get horribly injured. What are you doing with that knife? Huh? Nothing. <laughs> what are you doing tonight, Alex? <laughs> uh, I was just wondering because I was going to make crullers. Actually, I wasn't going to make crullers because it's Passover. Happy Passover, everybody. Chag Sameach to those of you that are celebrating. Word. Word. I think it's time for a break. Yeah, probably good idea. All right, when we come back, more Eye of Argon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes.
And you're listening to the K-Word Theater of the Air here on KWUR 90.3 sure FM. Yeah. Clayton. Oh. The K stands for quality. It does. I keep forgetting to say that. Ha <laughs> ha. That's our slogan. And uh, tonight, the K also stands for the Eye of Argon. <laughs> <laughs> I thought K stood for potassium. It, the Eye of Argon is chock full of potassium. <laughs> Among other things. I think Argon is something like 30% potassium. Uh... I read that in Science. Magazine. No. No, just... Weekly. Just Science. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been following our program for the past three weeks, we have been reading selections from The Eye of Argon, the greatest, best-written fantasy novel in the history of the world. Truth. And it's kind of a reading, and it's also kind of a competition. So you read, or each of us will read, a, uh, we'll begin reading, and... When we laugh, we pass it on to the next person. So the goal of the operation is to read for as long as possible without succumbing to horrible laughter. Uh, And if you remember the selection we read before the break, uh, a scantily clad sacrificial virgin of some kind kicked a shaman in the balls. And now the thrilling conclusion. Well, the thrilling next chapter. The thrilling next chapter. Chapter 6 of the Eye of Argon. Take hold of this rope, said the first soldier, and climb out from your pit, slut. Your presence is requested in another far deeper hellhole. Grigner slipped his right hand to his thigh, concealing a small opaque object beneath the folds of the G-string wrapped around his waist. Um. Brinewell swelled in in Grigner's cold, jade-squinting eyes which grown accustomed to the gloam of oh, <laughs> the there gloam you go. 
got the pen. I got the pen over here. <laughs> uh. Oh, dear. Grown accustomed to the gloom of the Stygian pools of ebony engulfing him, were bedazzled and blinded by flickering radiance cast forth by the second soldier's resin torch. Tightly gripped in the second soldier's right hand, opposite the intermittent torch, was a large double-edged axe, a long leather-wound oaken-handled transfixing the center of the, uh, of the weapon's iron head. Adorning the torsos of both the sentries were thin yet sturdy hauberks, the breastplates of which were ro- woven of tightly-hemmed twines of reinforced silver braiding. Cupping the soldiers' feet were thick leather sandals wound about their girdles. Hey, with slender-bladed ponyards dangling loosely from them, the hilts of which featured scarlet-encrusted gems. Resting upon the manes of their heads and reaching midway to their brows were smooth copper morions. Spiraling the lower portion of their helmet were short, upcurved silver spikes, while a hump spired from the top of each bassinet. Beneath their chins, blah, 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 wound around their necks and draping their clad shoulders dangled regal purple satin cloaks, which flowed midway to the soldiers' feet. Hand over hand, feet braced against the dank walls of the enclosure. Huge Grignir ascended from the moldering depths of the forlorn abyss. His swelled limbs, stiff due to the boredom of timeless inactivity, compounded by the musty atmosphere and jagged granite protuberan against his body... (laughs) craved for action. The opportunity now presenting itself served the purpose of oiling his rusty joints and honing his dulled senses. He braced himself, facing the second soldier. The sentry's stature was wildly exaggerated in the glare of the flickering crescent cuppics in his right fist. Cuppics. His eyes were wide open in a slightly slanted owlish gaze, enhanced in their sinister intensity by the hawk-bill curve of his nose and pale yellow peak of his cheeks. "'Place your hands behind your back,' said the second soldier, as he raised his axe over his right shoulder blade and cast it a wavering glance. "'We must bind your wrists to parry any attempts at escape. Be sure to make not a stout one, Broig. We wouldn't want our guest to take leave of our guidance.' Broig grasped Grignir's left wrist and reached for the barbarian's right wrist. Grignir uh, Grignir wrenched his right arm free and swiveled to face Broig. "'Reach!' Beneath his loincloth with his right hand. Oh, God. No! Yep, yep, yep. No! The sentry grappled at his girdle for the sheathed dagger, but recoiled short of his intentions as Grignir's right arm swept to his gorge. The soldier went limp, his bobbing (laughs) eyes rolling beneath fluttering eyelids, a deep welt across his spouting gullet. Without lingering to observe the effects of his efforts, Grignir dropped to his knees... The second soldier's axe <laughs> cleft over Grignir's head in a bise in a bise of silvered ferocity, severing several scarlet locks from his scalp. Coming to rest in his fellow's stomach, oh no, the iron head crashed through mail and flesh with splintering force, spilling a pool of crimson entrails over the granite paving. Huh. Before the sentry could wrench his axe free from his comrade's carcass, he found Grignir's massive hands grasped, clasped about his throat, choking the life from his clamped lungs. Again with the clamped lungs. With a zealous grunt, the accordion flexed his... Get your face out my face. David Brunel Brutman. David's going on too long. We must resort to... Oh, okay, okay. I'll I'll giggle. With a zealous grunt, the accordion flexed his tightly... Well, don't fake it. Well, hmm. 
Wouldn't you like to know? His tightly corded biceps, forcing the grim-faced soldier to one knee, the sentry plunged his right fist into Grignir's face, digging his grimy nails into the barbarian's flesh. Ejaculating a curse through <laughs> rasping teeth, Grignir surged the bulk of his weight forward, bowling the besieged soldier over on to, upon his back. The sentry's arms collapsed to his thighs, shuddering convulsively, his bulging eyes staring blindly from a bloated, cherry-red face. There's got to be something that's going to make me giggle. Rising to his feet, Grigner shook the billet from his eyes, ruffling his surly red mane as a brush fire swaying to the nighttime breeze, stooping over the spruce-sprawled corpse of the first soldier. <laughs> there, I didn't even have to fake it. The spruce-sprawl. I think you were faking. I think you were faking. Interrupt. Thank you. Um... Grigner retrieved a small white object from a pool of congealed gore. Snorting a, dust, a gusty billow of mirth, he once more concealed the tiny object beneath his loincloth, the tediously honed pelvis bone of the broken rodent. Returning his attention toward the second soldier, Grigner turned to the task of attiring his limbs. To move about freely through the dim recesses of the castle would require the grotesque garb of its soldiery. Utilizing the silence and stealth acquired in the untamed climbs of his childhood, Grigner slunk Excuse me. Grigner slink through twisted corridors, <laughs> winding stairways, lighting his way with the confiscated torch of the dispatched guardian. Knowing where his steps would lead, knowing not where his steps would lead to, Grigner meandered aimlessly in search of an exit from the chateau's dim confines. The wild blood coursing through his veins yearned for the undefiled freedom of the livid, wi- livid wilderness lands. Coming upon a fork in the passage, he trekked. Voices accompanied by clinking footfalls discerned to his sensitive ears from the left quarter. Wishing to avoid contact, Grigner veered to the right passageway. If requested as to the purpose of his presence, his barbarous accent would reveal his identity, being that his attire was not that of the castle's mercenary troops. In grim silence, Grigner treaded down the dimly lit corridor, stalking, a stalking panther creeping warily along on padded feet. After an interminable period of wandering through the dull corridors, no gaps to break the monotony of the cold gray walls, Grigner es- espied a small winding stairway, Descending the flight of arced granite slabs to the posterior, Grigner was confronted by a short hallway leading to tall, arched wooden doorway. Halting before the teeming portal portal, Grigner... <laughs> what? <laughs> a portal to a portal. <gasps> wow. Incredible. That's messed up. Grigner... Rests his shaggy head sideways against the barrier. Detecting no sounds from within, he grasps the loop metal handle of the door, his arms surging with a tremendous effort of <laughs> bulging muscles. Um, yet the door would not budge. Retrieving his axe from where he had sheathed it beneath his girdle, he hefted it into his mighty hands with an apposed grunt, wedging it with one of his blackened edges into the crack between the portal and its iron-rhymed sill. Bracing his sandaled foot right against a roughly hewn wall, teeth rightly clenched, Grigner appelevered the oaken haft. Appelevered? Appelevered the oaken haft. Where did you leave off here? Appelevered. This one? This one? Oh, I see it. I see it. This is quality stuff. Yes. I am uh, so happy we're doing this. Yeah, I know, right? Appelevered the oaken haft, employing it as a lever whereby to pry open the barrier. The leather-wound hilt bending to its utmost limits of endurance. The massive portal swung open with a grating of snapped latch and rusty iron hinges. 
Glancing about the dust-swirled room in the gloomily dancing glare of his flickering cresset, Grigner eyed evidences of the enclosure being nothing more than a forgotten storeroom. Miscellaneous articles required for the maintenance of a castle were piled in disorganized heaps at infrequent intervals toward the wall toward, toward the wall opposite the barbarian's piercing stare. Utilizing long, bounding strides, Grigner paced his way over to the mounds of supplies to discover if any articles of value were contained within their midst. Detecting a faint clinking sound, Grigner sprawled, sprawled to his left side with the <laughs> speed of a striking cobra, landing harshly upon his back, torch and axe loudly clattering to the floor in a morass of sparks and flame. An elm-woven board leaped from collapsed flooring, clashing against the jagged flooring and spewing a shower of orange and yellow sparks over Grigner's startled face. <laughs> Rising uneasily to his feet, the half-stunned accordion glared down at the gruesome arm of death he had unwittingly sprung. Mfurk! <laughs> M-R-I-F-K! Exclamation point. Mfurk. Mfurk. If not for his keen auditory organs and lighting, lighting steeled reflexes, Grigner would have been groping through the shadowed hell pits of the Grim Reaper. <laughs> oh, God. He had unknowingly stumbled across upon an ancient, long-forgotten booby trap, a mistake which would have stunted the perusal of longevity of one less agile. A mechanism similar in type to that of a miniature catapult was concealed beneath two collapsible sections of granite flooring. The arm of the device was four feet long, boasting razor-like cleats at regular intervals along its face, with which it was to skewer the luckless body of its would-be victim. Grigner had stepped upon a concealed catch when released a small metal latch beneath the two granite sections, causing them to fall inward, and thereby loose the spiked arm of death they precariously held in. Hmm. Partially out of curiosity and partially out of an inordinate fear of becoming a pincushion for a possible second trap, Grigner plunged his torch into the exposed gap in the floor, the floor of a second chamber stood out seven feet below the glare. Tossing his torch through the aperture, aperture, Grigner grasped the side of an adjoining tile, dropping down. Glancing about the room, Grigner discovered that he had descended into the palace's mausoleum. Rectangular stone crypts cluttered the floor at evenly paced intervals. The tops of the enclosures were plated with thick layers of virgin gold, while the sides were plated <laughs> with white ivory at one time sparkling, but now grown dingy through the passage of the rays and through the passage of the rays of all-encompassing mother time. Alan's, <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, featured at the head of each sarcophagus in tarnished silver was an expugnissively, expugnissively carved likeness of its rotting inhibitant. A dingy atmosphere pervaded the air of the chamber, which sealed in the enclosure for an unknown period and had grown thick and stale. Intermingling with the curdled currents was the repugnant stench of slowly moldering flesh, Ugh. creeping ever so slowly but surely through minute cracks in the numerous vaults. Due, the, due to the embalming of the bodies, their flesh decayed at a much slower rate than normal, yet the nauseous odor was nonetheless repellent. Towering over Grigner's head was the trap he released. The mechanism of the miniaturized catapult was cluttered with mildew and cobwebs. Notwithstanding these relics of antiquity, its efficiency remained unimpinged, 
To the right of the mm-hmm. trap wound a short stairway through a recess in the ceiling, a concealed entrance leading to the mausoleum for which the catapult had obviously been erected as a silent, relentless guardian. <laughs> Climbing up the side of the device, Grigner is set to the task of resetting its mechanism. In the E event that a search was organized, <laughs> it would prove well to leave no evidence of this presence open for want to wandering eyes. Besides, it might even serve to dwindle the size of an opposing force. <clears throat> Descending from his perch, Grigner was startled by a faintly muffled scream of horrified desperation. His hair prickled. McGurf! I believe it was Mfrick. I don't remember. His hair prickled yawkishly. Yawkish. Can you read that sentence again, Alexa? His hair prickled yawkishly in disorganized clumps along his scalp. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what is that? What? Disorganized clumps along his scalp. Was that a laugh? I, yeah, that was a Can laugh. We vote? Yeah, okay. no, that was. Yeah. I laughed definitely. Oh. I, I'm just trying to figure out what that, that even was means. So tasty. Did his hair just oh, yawkishly? Uh, uh, press on, <laughs> As a cold danced along the length of his spinal cord, no moral, moral, no, sorry, no moral slash mortal barrier, human or otherwise, was capable of arousing the numbing sensation of fear inside of Grigner's smoldering soul. However, he was overwrought by the forces of the barbarian's instinctive fear of the supernatural. His mighty thews had always served to adequately conquer an any tangible foe, but the intangible was something distant and terrible. Dim, horrifying tales passed by word of mouth over glimmering campfires and skins of wine had more than once served the purpose of chilling the marrowed core of his sturdy-limbed bones. Yet, the scream contained a strangely human quality, unlike that which Grignir imagined would come from the lungs of a demon or spirit, making Grignir take short, nervous strides advancing to the sarcophagus from which the sound was issuing. Clenching his teeth in an attempt to steal his jangled nerves, Grigner slid the engraved slab from the vault with a sharp rasp of grinding stone. Another long-drawn cry of terror, infested anguish, met the barbarian, scoring like the shrill piping of a demented banshee, (laughs) piercing... The inner fibers of his superstitious brain with primitive <laughs> dread, dread, and awe. <laughs> Stooping over to espy the tomb's contents, the glittering accordion's nostrils were singed <laughs> by the scorching aroma of a moldering corpse, long shut up and fermenting. The <laughs> same putrid scent which permeated the entire chamber though multiplied to a much more concentrated dosage. The shriveled, leathery packet of crumbling bones and dried, flacking flesh (laughs) offered no resistance but remained in a fixed position of perpetual vigilance, watching over its dim abode from hollow, gaping sockets. The tortured crees were not coming from the tomb, but from some hidden depth below. Pulling the reeking corpse from its from its resting place, Grigner tossed it to the floor in a broken, mangled heap. Upon one side of the crypt's bottom was attached a series of tiny hinges, which, while running parallel along the opposite side of a convex railing, like protuberance. 
laid so as to appear as a part of the interior surface of the sarcophagus. Did you get that? I think so. Raising the slab upon its bronze hinges, long removed from the gaze of human eyes, Grigner perceived a scene which caused his blood to smolder, not unlike bubbling molten lava. Directly below him, a whimpering female lay stretched upon a smooth, surfaced marble altar. A pack of grassy-faced shaman clustered around her in a tight, (laughs) circular formation. Readers, listeners, this is the woman from before. Ooh. Pay attention. Okay. Crouched over the girl was a tall, pot-bellied priest, his face dominated by a disgusting, open-mouthed grimace of sadistic glee. (laughs) Suspended from the acolyte's clenched right hand was a carven, oval-faced mallet, which he waved menacingly over the girl's shadowed face, an incoherent gibberish flowing from his grinning, thick-lipped mouth. In the face of the... I think that's supposed to be amorphous. Broad, breeded female, I believe that's supposed to be breasted, stretched out alluringly before his gaping eyes, the universal whim of nature filling a plea of despair inside his white, hot soul. Grigner <laughs> acted in the only manner he could perceive, giving a vent to a hoarse, throat-rending battle cry. Grigner plunged into the midst of the startled shaman, torch shimmering, Torch, sorry, simmering. In his left hand, Andax whirling, uh, that is Andax, twirling in his right hand. A giant skull-faced priest standing at the far side of the (laughs) altar clutched desperately at his throat, coughing furiously in in an attempt to catch his breath. Lurching helplessly to and fro, the acolyte pitched headlong against the gleaming base of of a massive jade idol. Writhing agonizedly against the hideous image, foam flecking his chalk-white lips, the priest struggled helplessly, the victim of an epileptic seizure. (laughs) (laughs) David Stern. (laughs) That was the end of the... Oh, that's the end of the chapter? No, no, sorry, that's the end of the top paragraph there. Oh, okay. (laughs) The victim. The victim of an epileptic seizure. Startled by the barbarian's stunning appearance, the chronic fit of their fellow, and the fear that Grignir might be the avant-garde of a conquering force dedicated to the cause of destroying their degenerated cult, the the salmon, the salmon, momentarily lost their composure. (laughs) Giving vent to heedless pandemonium, the priests fell easy prey to Grignir's sweeping arc of crimson death and maiming destruction. The acolyte performing the sacrifice took a vicious blow to the stomach, hands clutching vitals and severed spinal cord as he sprawled over the altar. Wait, he was clutching his severed spinal cord. I, I believe so. <laughs> the disorganized priests lurched and staggered with split skulls, dismembered limbs, and spewing entrails before the enraged accordion's <laughs> relentless onslaught. The howless of the maimed uh, and dying reverberated against the walls of the tiny chamber. The chorus, a chorus of hail fraught despair as the granite floor ran red with blood. Oh, man. We're going to run out of time, and there's not going to be enough time to end this chapter. Okay, we'll get to the end of that. Why, why don't we finish this thrilling death? Yes. A chorus of hell fraught despair as the granite floor ran red with blood. The entire chamber was encompassed in the heat of raw, savage butchery, as Grignir luxuriated in the grips of a primitive, beastly bloodlust. Presently all went silent, save for the ebbing groans of the sinking shaman and Grignir's heaving breath accompanied by several gusty curses. The well had run dry. 
no more lambs remained for the slaughter. The rampaging stead of death had taken hold of Brigner for the moment, left the barbarian free to the exploitation of his other perusals. Towering over his head was the misshaped image of the cult's hideous deity, Argon. <gasps> well, that about ends it for our show tonight, I'm afraid. Yes, indeed. Uh, I think we're going to have to go. play the music. Oh, not the music. Mr. Music, no. won't you play? Uh, oh, there we go. Yeah. I think this is very appropriate music for the Eye of Argon. For sure. We should probably run it underneath. So we are out of time. We will conclude Chapter 6, ladies and gentlemen, next week. So tune in. You won't want to miss it. Okay? Grignir the Barbarian, he's going to do something crazy. I don't even know what he's going to do. It's going to be so crazy. Y'all have no idea. Rip out a spinal cord. All right, so credit time. The KWR Theater of the Air was written and produced by David Reinstrom, Alex Jensen, and David Brunel Brutman. Sky Pirates this week, starring Evan Kun as your humble narrator, Alex Jensen as Lady Magdalena von Schwarzhofen, David Brunel Brutman as Baron Klaus von Graup, Kareth Parashak as George, Michael Gizerni as Taggart, Ben Steinberg as Stegman, David Reinstrom as Captain Gulliver Nash, uh, Justin Pieper, uh, oh, featuring uh, Willis Garcini, Justin Pieper, and Alice Sheldon as Bladebot. Special thanks to Sam Clapp and Robert Ling III, our most noble and intrepid interns. Sound design this week was provided by Grigner and the Pelvic Girdles. Just a reminder, today's episode of the k Theater of the Air can be heard on both radio. <laughs> the buttock of the day is the left one. I repeat, the left one. Keep that in mind, ladies and gentlemen. The shin of the week is Jade Jade. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All right, have a great week, folks. See you we'll next see time. see you next time. Ciao. Uh, my foam flecked fuse flex happily I'm going at to the notion poke of. Poke your eyeballs with Mac my Manfley? ejaculating. No, stay away. Keep your ejaculating.